While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. good all right let's talk about pie i made my own crust in defiance of everything that anyone has ever told me about crust i made my own pie crust (laughs) it was the first time i'd ever made it and i was like oh yeah this will be easier than literally everyone ever has told me that it is that's true welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and andrew just made his first pie crust recently and it went pretty okay yeah what what was the recipe? It was pumpkin. A what pumpkin was the pumpkin pie? Was it a pumpkin pie crust or was it just a pie crust? No, it was just a pie crust. Okay. Like most pies, I think, use the same crust. So this recipe said you could put in sugar for sweet recipes and leave it out for savory recipes. Interesting. Yeah, I know, right? All I'm... kinds of pies in this wide world of ours. The secret, apparently, is sour cream. Mmm. Mm. And I don't know why that's the secret, but first you mush together like two sticks of butter and some flour. <laughs> yeah. And then you add sugar and salt and sour cream. Sour or, cream. I didn't, I don't know that I knew about sour cream. I don't know. Yeah, that. I don't know. I don't know enough about the physics of pie crust to know what it's doing, but it, it's, it turned out. It's probably a taste so. and consistency thing. Yeah. Yeah. When we stop talking about the pies we've been meaning to eat and talk about the books that we've been meaning to read. Oh, well, look at you. Look at me. I'm Bef- Dr. Segway. <laughs> Before we get into the book you read this week, which was what, Andrew? It was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Great. Before we start talking about The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, I want to share a listener email uh, from Paula. Hey, Paula. And she, it's called Sleepy Hollow Part 2. Uh, which is, okay uh, and she says uh, I was so excited to tell you how much I love your podcast that I didn't elaborate on the way I should have she had written in about Sleepy Hollow before I think yes. um, there have been a batch of Halloween themed holiday reading podcast episodes uh, so I decided to read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Hound of Baskervilles this year oh man I was disappointed she says <laughs> in both or just Sleepy Hollow uh, I think mostly the first one, I'll tell you. Okay. Here you go. Right. The only version I knew of Sleepy Hollow was the animated Disney version, which had been rather scary. I had no idea it was really a lame love triangle prank story. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agreed with your assessment of it in your episode. And she says, as for How to the Baskervilles, I agree that Sherlock Holmes is... Um, Andrew, how do we feel about the D word? The D word? Yeah, for... for uh, Male genetic. Oh, you mean he's a dick? Yeah. I, I feel agree- okay about okay. it. Okay. I agree that Sherlock Holmes is a dick. Uh, in fact, I'm working my way through the complete Holmes collection, and he's pretty much a dick in all of them, just more <laughs> so in this one. Uh, and she said, and thank you, question mark, for teaching me about graham crackers with frosting. I don't remember when we talked about that. I think I talked about it, because it it's grown-up Dunkaroos. Oh, it is grown-up Dunkaroos. <laughs> I had that second revelation, I guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that the whole Holmes thing is that he's a lovable dick, right? That's like the whole idea. I don't know that he's a lovable dick, but like he's really smart and he gets results. So <laughs> there are a num- there is a limited number of people in the whole world who are willing to put up with it. Fair enough. So that I mean that that's that's the lesson, kids. Like if you are gonna be really eccentric and have a huge character flaw, you better have some other stuff to make up for it. You better be really good at what you profess to you do. You better be like pretty or cool or smart or I don't know, have really great hair. I does would we say that Benedict Cumberbatch is all of those things? Mm, he has a he's quite a name. That's an that's an impressive he credential. Seems- Smart. He goes. He goes through life with that name, and, and he's that, made it thus far. <laughs> that implies great strength of character. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk about Margaret Atwood, Andrew. Why did you decide to read this book? What was the context of you reading this book? Where did it come from? Um, we'd had a listener ask that we read um, 
more Canadian literature in general, and I think Atwood specifically. Okay. And um, this is one of her more recognizable works. Like I knew the name of it without knowing really anything else about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> which fair. I think is the is you know with a lot of authors who have been around for a long time and whose names you have heard even if you have if you haven't read anything by them. Like they have one or two books that you'd see and you're like, oh yeah, that must be the one that they are known for because it's the one that. I know about in spite of being completely ignorant about every other fact about this person. <laughs> yeah, I'll confess I had never heard her name until college. I don't know how that happened. Um, I don't know if it's the same for you. There, I think a book of hers came out, Oryx and Crake came out okay. sometime in the early 2000s, perhaps while we were still in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember people talking about her a lot and I was like, I don't know who this is. What's going on? And then when I was doing research for this podcast, she's born in 1939. Lady's been around for a while. Yeah, she's been around. So I don't know how I, how I missed that. Maybe we've been ignoring her for our entire lives. I mean, I'm not ignorant of Canadian stuff. I watched kids in the hall. Like I know that Canada creates things. They made pretty much every kids show in the nineties. I didn't watch any Degrassi. It's I don't. It's not just Degrassi. Like you listen, you you <laughs> watch like Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh yeah, you, and you watch a whole bunch of cartoons, and they're all like, "Oh, sorry, come over to my house," and you're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> when you said sorry, I thought you were saying someone's name. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she's like the like eminent writer of Canada though from what I I think she's one of the most she's one of the best known outside of Canada especially she wrote a uh, a book called Survival a thematic guide to Canadian literature mm. that um domestically is kind of considered to be out of date at this point but is still used in America and a lot of places to um to introduce people to Canadian literature so she's definitely one of the giants of the field the the large field that is Canadian writing. I'm sure it's super big and that you're being really insulting right now. I think I tried to make a play off the fact that like field and like Canada's big and it came off as me hating on Canada. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not. I don't think I made that connection. But yeah, it, it's like <laughs> Margaret Atwood and Kate Beaton and who else? Um, Alice Munro. She won the Nobel a little while. She's like a short story writer. Is that her sure. name? All right, we're going to we're going to get off this subject. Yeah, let's she move is, on. She's a Canadian author. Uh she is often critical of the US, um, especially in the period when Handmaid's Tale was conceived and written. It was published in 1985. Okay. And um the protagonist as we'll talk about in a little bit is often considered to be Canada and the oppressive society that she lives in is often considered to be the u.s oh snap <laughs> and so the u.s is always getting canada down basically is is one of the many messages now if there book. are canadian listeners to this show i would like them to just tell me a little bit about your national identity because for me canada also has this weird relationship with britain where like they really like the queen but they're still their own thing and then there's a bunch of french people who live in quebec who don't want to be canadian so like i don't know canada has weird relationships with all sorts of countries i feel like quebec's thing may have been exaggerated like it's like if somebody in canada was like oh the only thing i know about america is texas that one state that doesn't want to be part of america fair enough fair enough you're right um but still i i don't Canada's mixed up in all sorts of the like initial North American land grab nonsense. Sure. Yeah, and I actually um one of the things about Canada loving Britain or, or that that's an oversimplification I'm sure but yeah. um Susanna and I are watching the HBO miniseries John Adams with oh, yes. uh, Paul, Paul Giamatti as John Adams. Yeah. And sexy Laura Linney Paul, is sexy Paul Giamatti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really sexy version of John Adams. <laughs> He basically just blows everybody. <laughs> That's how he gets a declaration of independence ratified. <laughs> um, anyway, it had me, it it made me read, and it didn't make me read, it inspired me to read about the War of 1812. Okay. And one of the things about the War of 1812, which basically ended with no territory in North America changing hands, at least between America and Britain, is that... Um, 
in Canada, it's it's considered like a big defining moment for Canada because otherwise it's generally believed that the U.S. would have just grabbed it huh. and they and they would have become American. And so one of the reasons, yeah, that's one of the reasons that there is such a strong British connection up there is that um, through the War of 1812, it's it's like the two nations are linked together and Canada made this statement that like we are we are going to maintain ties toward Britain and we're not going to be American. Thank you very much. Interesting. I'm probably getting some of that wrong, Canadian listeners, so do correct me, but I think that's that's the simplified version. All right. I like it. I like that. I should I, I like should like Canada's one of those little like they've got a lot of cool stuff going on up there, but as an American, I'm like, well, I'm pretty much the only thing in North America that matters. So I'm not gonna learn anything about Canada. <laughs> yeah, we do we do tend to do that a little bit. So, if there are Canadian listeners out there, educate us about your home. We would like to know more about it, please. Um, back to back to Atwood. Yep. Aside from her very strong connections to Canada, there's a few cool things that I noticed um, as I was researching. Uh huh. Um, one was that she began writing at the age of six and was, was aspiring to do it professionally by the time she was 16. Well, and I also read that she um, didn't go to school full full time until she was like grade eight. Or something like oh, really? that. That's she was raised by her parent. One of her parents um, was a forest entomologist. What is that? What's an entomologist, Andrew? An entomologist studies books. Great. So this is her. F- I only know that because my brother wanted to be one. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? Bugs are gross. Bugs are the grossest. Um, I only want I only want to know anything about entomology if it teaches me how to squash bugs better. Ooh, yes. Or <laughs> if it were like if I shouldn't squash that bug, but I should light it on fire because squashing it attracts would only make more it bugs. stronger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it would make it smell bad or something. Uh, so I, from the like the narrative that gets tossed around is that she spent a large portion of her early life just kind of like wandering around in the woods um (laughs) and like not only like you know like reading and writing but also had that kind of formulative experience of self you know entertainment out and like discovering new adventures and and stuff like that out in the woods yeah yeah a different childhood than people who are raised within the confines of the school system yes precisely um, and then among her her works is this thing called the long pen. Yeah, I was I was hoping we would talk about the long pen in two thousand four. And I think it's kind it's really niche, but it's kind of cool. It's um it was conceived as this like video conferencing system that also allows people to write in ink remotely over the internet. Uh huh. So I I don't know like I assume that you're con you're controlling some kind of robot. So Arm, from what I understand, or yeah, tell me how. I tell read, me more about how this works. So she invented it. She helped invent it in two thousand four, and then I, there were a bunch of articles about it in two thousand six when it, like, which is when it came out. When it came out, and she, it's twofold. The way that she kind of trumpeted it is that it allows authors like her and other famous people, I guess, the opportunity <laughs> to sign autographs from wherever. So what she would do is she would write her autograph into some kind of kind of like signing your signature like at a gas station or something, except probably okay. more high definition than that. Like a and then the robot hand would recreate it on the other end with an actual pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, you're also video conferencing with Atwood. So she's like. You know, you go up to the machine, the ATM signature machine, and you say, Miss Atwood, I really loved your book. And she's like, okay, great. Put your copy of my book in front of the robot hand. It's so nice to meet you through the internet. And then she signs, she fake signs a piece of screen, and then it signs your book. Um, so in, in this case, ATM is Atwood Teller Machine. Yes, precisely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so she... Um, she kind of says that it's it's not just for the privacy of the author, which I think it primarily is. Um, I don't know if it's about privacy so much as it is like being able to do book tours without it being so disruptive to the person's life. Right? That those are the that's kind of what I've I've also read it pitched as. Not only is it not as disruptive to the author's life, so maybe as they're getting up in their age and can't travel as frequently, 
Also, if you want to take an environmental standpoint and say that air travel is costly, so why do book tours like that when I could just Skype into, you know, bookstores and then have my robot hand sign them? That one sounds a bit like a benefit that was invented after the (laughs) Perhaps. And then (laughs) the other one is the, like, and now with this device, I could reach fans in countries or I couldn't travel to or in rural areas where it would be very difficult to travel to, in which case I'm thinking, how are you going to get the robot hand there? And do they have internet good enough to send your face next to the robot hand? I don't know. That's that's interesting because, okay, like, put yourself – in a fan's shoes. Like imagine that you were trying to find a baseball that was signed by a prominent, like up and coming baseball man. Give me the name of a baseball man who you like. A baseball man that I like specifically. Yeah. yeah. I like well, he's not up and coming. I like I like Chase Utley. He's I retiring. just need a name. Like <laughs> Well, you had specific don't write, criteria. Don't write me a book. Chase I, Utley. Chase Utley. I didn't I was gonna say Adam Jones, but he plays for the Baltimore Orioles and any Philadelphia people listening would think I was betraying Philadelphia. So let's okay. say Trace Utley. Trace Utley. Chase, Trace Trace Utley. No, Chase Utley. Chase. Okay, you got mad and I couldn't understand you anymore. Okay. Okay. So imagine you are looking for a baseball signed by Chase Utley. Yes. I you're am on eBay. Actually. You're on oh okay. You're on eBay and you're looking for a baseball and you find one. But you don't know, like, would you be upset if you bought that baseball and it turns out that it had been signed by a Chase Utley computer? I would like, be. Would a- that be as good as a real in-person signature? It wouldn't be as good because then I didn't get to actually be in the same room with him. But you got to Skype with him through a robot. That doesn't seem good enough. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Which mean, is why I have only heard about the long pen today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I would prefer... Instead of any other... But yeah, my initial Google search of the long pen turned up a couple articles from around the time of the invention of the long pen. And then when I started, it got renamed from long pen to the actual like company that... Oh, no, I almost lost the... Ah, dang it, I think I closed the link... Um, Signafy or something is that Syngraphy, excuse me, is the name of her like technology company that mm-hmm. now manages the long pen technology and whatever else they're doing with it. And in the past like two or three years, there were a bunch of articles that went out on it today on not today, but this year about how now it's being co-opted into like banks and other legal realms. As, like, rather than I fax you my signature because no one uses faxes and I take a picture of it on my phone and then you, like, stamp it on a PDF, now it's for, like, you know, patent law and high, you know, high importance monetary transactions. You can have robot hands signing stuff. Yeah. So Um, I just thought that was a... I mean, it's obviously one of those ideas from the, like, okay, what can we do with the internet now Mm -hmm. era? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The same one that gave birth to, like, YouTube and and a lot of the stuff that's big now. Yes. Um, Well, and so in the past several years, she's been – we'll we'll get more into this as we talk about the book, I guess, specifically. But she seems to have taken on the, like, I will talk about technology openly and be interested in it and see where it takes us rather than – the like cliche of the classic book author who's like i don't whatever i just buy my books please yeah like the knee-jerk thing about how kindles are the end of society so she even there's a huffington post article from three years ago where she claimed you know her stance on twitter and the internet is that it boosts literacy you know it might not be she doesn't say this, but it might not be the highest quality of literacy, but there's a basic level of literacy <laughs> that is required of using a smartphone and using Twitter that yeah. isn't required of like just going to work at, you know, as a job that doesn't require it and then just like driving yourself home in the car. Sure. If I'm going to if I'm going to enter that insurance contest, I need to I need to be able to write. Well, yeah, and if you're going to tweet <laughs> how much you don't like the new Whatever song lightsaber in Star Wars, or I think, is the, the subject of <laughs> the subject du jour. Well, if whether or not you like it, but you think it's largely impractical, <laughs> um, then yeah, you need to have a basic 
understanding of some language, some written language, that you can tweet mm-hmm. about it. Um, and she's active on Twitter. I, I, I saw her. I looked at her Twitter feed, and she spent some time over the weekend, like, tweeting about some other authors and, like, thanking people for their comments on her stuff. So she seems pretty well engaged uh, for an author that's been at this for several decades. Yeah, right, because a lot, a lot of the time, even... The, even um even ones who are more like acclimated to this digital stuff often have like publicists or whatever doing it for them. So that that's cool. That's interesting. And she's she's given speeches and uh she gave a keynote speech at like a a technology conference in Chicago, um mm-hmm. I think or no, in Toronto, excuse me. Um I I thought Chicago cuz it was called CHI 2014. <laughs> um <laughs> about like the human factor in computing systems and talking about like our fear of robot takeovers and why we create all these stories about you know the end of the world because of machines and stuff like that. So yeah. her her penchant for near future or speculative fiction and and drawing the line between that and science fiction sometimes seems to that combined with her work on long pen has gotten her a little bit of cultural cachet in that. Yeah, in that area. So let's dive. Right. Let's dive into the book because I think. Yeah, right. We, I think we we'll want to wrestle say, with some good, of this. Yeah. It's a good place to jump in. Is uh, yeah, Handmaid's Tale was published in 1985. Like we said, um, it received the first Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1987, and uh, was also nominated for Nebula and Prometheus Awards, and those are all science fiction awards. Okay. Um, and they're sci-fi awards, and this is often considered to be a sci-fi book, even though Atwood has said at times that it's really intended to be speculative fiction rather than sci-fi and her, her, and she does this a lot as she, she thinks she seems to think that labels are really important. Like, um, genre labels. Yeah. Like what, well, like one of her books from the sixties is considered to be kind of a feminist, uh, huh, a feminist work, like a second wave feminist book, but it preceded, Second wave feminism by a few years. It's um, the Edible Woman. Interesting. It's published in 1969. Um, is that a novel or a book of poetry? Because she wrote a lot of poetry as well. It is a novel. Okay. And um, it was published, you know, along with the early second wave of the feminist movement, as uh, as this article says. And um, and she she believes apparently that the feminist label can only be applied to writers who consciously work within the framework of the feminist movement. So basically you can't accidentally write a feminist book or like you can't write a feminist book without declaring that it's a feminist book and that you're a feminist. And so so in, in okay. kind of the same way she says that this is speculative fiction, speculative fiction. I should enunciate that a little better rather than sci-fi. Yeah, because she said something about like how sci-fi is, yeah, the, space travel the, and says, aliens or something. <laughs> she says, for me, the science fiction label belongs on books with things in them that we can't yet do. Speculative fiction means a work that employs the means already to hand and that takes place on planet Earth. So basically, speculative fiction has that extra punch that mm-hmm. comes with being possible. <laughs> Yeah, so or like possible given stuff that we interact with. Yeah, I, I think it's what is it? It's the difference between maybe like The Giver and Ender's Game or something like that. Where I think The Giver still has some kind of supernatural stuff going on. But yeah, but I think in terms of like the technology in that book, mm-hmm. other than the magic of memories through massage, I think that <laughs> it's largely <laughs> speculative fiction. <laughs> Okay. I don't All know. Right. If you if you think this is a speculative future in which we live in a black and white weather dome and can just... transmit memories by massage, then yeah, I'm totally with you. Well, I think that... I got a massage the other day, and now I remember what it's like to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> I'll just say that after you said <laughs> I got a massage the other day, I got... I hoped you were telling the truth, and then I got really jealous of you. I don't know if you were just goofing, but I no, I, I got one over my honeymoon. Oh God, I want, I want but like I didn't a get professional I, massage. So I didn't, I didn't get any memories. From massage that, me that I know with of. this book because I need a massage. I don't I think, think this book yeah. is going to do that for me, but let's find out. All right, so uh, much like last week's Animal Farm, uh, this book is dystopian. 
Um, and it's about a society called uh, the Republic of Gilead where women are inferior to men. Okay. And they are they cannot own property. They are generally forbidden to read mm-hmm. um, outside of very, very specific circumstances. I'm just going to rattle off all the ways in no, which this is, a, this is a dystopia, like, way up top. Yeah, please. Um, African-Americans have been relocated to other areas away from the white people. Um, and Jews are given the opportunity to convert or to go to Israel. Um, those who stayed and were discovered secretly practicing Judaism were generally executed. Um, those who chose to go to Israel, at least some of them, were dumped off the boat halfway. Oh, dear. Because the boats doing it were privatized and those companies wanted to maximize their profits. Real quick. Um, this is already awful. <laughs> yes. Uh, real quick. Is it explicitly in like a next phase America, like geographically? Like does this – does it reference historical events or times that we would – no outside the fiction of the book or is it just far enough ahead in time that it just never mentions that stuff it takes place in what was once the united states of america okay and the u.s is a recent memory to people so um our protagonist her name is offred okay fred <laughs> um and she was, you know, she once was a regular woman in what was pretty much a recognizably regular society, you know, for, for us anyway, as Americans. Oh, really? So in her living memory? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And even like into her 20s, like, you know, into her adult life. Wow. Okay. Um, It's not clear whether this is a society that's just supposed to like closely mirror ours or if there this is a fiction where there's like a clear breaking point between what we recognize as reality and the events in the book. Mm. Um, there are two things that could be uh, the, the you know, point of separation. One is that all finances in this world went, you know, all digital at some point. Okay. Like there's, so no, there's, there's no, no paper money. It's, it's all, it's all digital and all bank accounts are clearly labeled by gender. Okay. Um, the second and more extreme point of separation is there is a, uh, there is this group called the uh, look my notes. the sons of Jacob who kill the president and a lot of other government officials. Oh dear! And they blame it on a Muslim terrorist group, and then they <sighs> suspend the U.S. Constitution in the name of keeping order. And after doing this, they quickly, you know, using the using the bank system take away all the money and, and property of the women. Uh, they subjugate them to their husbands. Um, they begin to, and this is all, this all happens like gradually, like bit by bit, like the book jumps back and forth in time between the present and the past. Oh, like the, and in, in, okay. yeah, in the sections that are in the past, it is, um, Afred's account of the, you know, the takeover and the, the, period immediately after and leading up to her present circumstances how old is she in the present circumstances she is early 30s um she is you know still of childbearing age which is important as we'll get into in a little bit okay so it's um so but you were saying that the takeover started happening like in her 20s so yeah like you know there aren't there aren't years on things specifically i mean i I, this was in my honeymoon books so i have i have What's stuck with me is the big stuff and Great. not so no, much that's the helpful. little tiny details. But um, she's, you know, she's in this what is basically a re-education camp, and they're using some desks that used to belong to school school kids. Okay, and there are carvings like going all the way up to like the late seventies or the very early eighties, and then they stop, which is kind of indicative of when society as you and I know it, yes, stopped, fell apart in favor of this like ultra conservative really staunchly christian like hardline christian society is it explicitly christian yeah i mean it takes most of its imagery and and stuff from well it's called gilead of course all right yeah and the sons of jacob and all that stuff yeah okay and so i'm i'm telling this pretty much chronologically just to just to get the point of the story across but it starts it starts very much in medias race and you get these bits and pieces 
in little chunks, not, you know, not necessarily given in chronological order. It takes you quite a bit of time to like figure out what happened to make society to, you know, to make the dystopia that you are introduced to at the beginning. Yeah. Of the book. And uh, that, does it kind of start with her in whatever circumstance she's already in and then yes. kind of works backwards yes. at, as it, at its leisure? Yeah. So like you spend some time in the present, you spend a lot of time in her re-education camp and then you spend some time with her back in college through uh, meeting Luke, who she marries. Okay. And then she has a daughter with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, there, there are several characters from her past who are important. There's her, um, her staunchly feminist mother. Um, she has a friend named uh, Moira who um, is also absorbed into this new dystopian system, but tries to buck it a little bit harder mm-hmm. than she does. Um, but the most important is Luke because, you know, they, they are married, they have a kid, but he divorced his first wife to marry her. And as this takeover continues and as more and more stuff is taken from women, you know, they, they stop recognizing second marriages because, you know, they, they are the kind of hardline Christian that is like, okay, divorce isn't cool. <laughs> mm, okay. You, you're, you pretty much have to stick with whoever. Um, so what is, so yeah, the... they, they try to, they try to flee into Canada and are captured. Okay. Um, she is taken and sent to the re-education camp. Um, her daughter is still alive, but in the possession of another household. Um, you never see her in the, you know, aside in the present, you never see her except like at one point she's shown a picture to prove that her daughter is still alive. Okay. And then Luke is, you, you never learn what happened to him. Huh. And that's and that's a big point throughout the book is she's always wondering like where he is, what he's doing, if he is dead, like just just what happened to him. And it, it's it's one of the biggest hanging mysteries in the book. It's just like where did hmm. he go? Was he? I don't know. Okay. So that's that's kind of setting the stage for so where the events of the book i guess okay is the is the takeover and the cast system which i want to ask you a little bit about Mm -hmm. the particulars of is that pretty well established and not really changing anymore at the at the start of the events of the book like it's pretty well settled now yeah yeah pretty much okay um the you know this this takes place in the capital city which is just called gilead and um According, you know, according to what I've read about the book, this is this is apparently the Harvard Square neighborhood of Massachusetts or what was once that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you get references to um, to continuing conflict and to revolution. But it's it's far away from the capital city. Like you're you're in the heart of this new society and the values of that society are pretty safe. Like there's an underground resistance movement, but they're very furtive and secretive and they're getting found out and taken away all the time. Like it's just, it's very hard for anybody living in the city to, to challenge the system without awful stuff happening to them. So, okay. (laughs) um, So since that's where you spend most, almost all of your time in the present, like that's that, that is your knowledge of society as it stands. Fair enough. So what, what are the specifics of, what they've instituted in their conservative regime. Yeah. So there are, you know, a handful of powerful men at the top and then women um, are, rele- you know, as long as they're not black or Jewish or whatever, they are relegated to a few different roles. Some of them are the wives of the men in power. Um, some of them are aunts who are the people who are in charge of running the reeducation camps. Okay. And that's that's generally considered to be one of the better deals you can cut as a woman because they are like generally allowed to read and have a little bit more freedom. Like they they have people below them, which is not the case for most women in the society. But you have to be willing to re-educate the other women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like okay. you pretty much have to to swallow any thoughts of resistance or any um, like solidarity with other women. Uh huh. In the name of self-preservation, basically. Okay. Um, and there, there are some who are like housekeepers and cooks. Um, there are some who have been exiled and are off, like toiling in these basically 
what is implied to be war zones or areas that were like bombed and by bombed i mean like nuclear bombed that's where they take places the, places the where you yeah. yeah places where you are used as expendable labor with the understanding that you will die of something before too long sounds awesome um and then there are there's a class of people who are concubines um and this that's what off red is is that in this society um radiation and stds have made um procreation difficult babies okay. are born less often and when they are born they're uh they are more prone to deformity interesting okay and so this whole society has set up the system where these men and their older wives can't conceive but the preservation of the species is important and so they have this this um institutionalized concubine system and it's really like when they have sex is really strange because like the wife is there and then the concubine is like between her legs what and then the the no. man of the household is having sex with her while everybody is there and it's like she's just you know she's she's just a reproductive system that is being used uh, in, in lieu of, of the wife's is so, reproductive system not to get too gross about it but is there any sense that yeah, sex is gross. Well, is there any... <laughs> That's well, how you get cooties. We knew that. I mean, <laughs> please. I read the pamphlets. Um, is there any sense that sex is pleasurable? And is it like she's... Not in this circumstance. No, no, fair enough. Um, but kind of what you said, just to make sure I'm, I'm understanding what you described, it's not that like he's having sex with his wife and then the handmaid is bearing the actual baby because he no. didn't actually have sex with his wife. No, it's he's just, having sex with a handmaid the whole And the time. wife's the wife just wife is there just to make there sure that it's so that it's all making above board. It weird. Yeah, to like to symbolically have it be know. her child or something. Yeah, right, right. Because you know, having having a kid having a keeper, that's what they call babies who aren't deformed. The babies who are deformed are called shredders. Oh and we don't, ha, he and, we don't learn what happens to them, but I am willing no. to bet that they don't grow up to become the villain from Ninja Turtles. No. So. <laughs> they would never get the chance. No. Oh no. And there, there is another uh, cast of women named uh, called the Jezebels. Of course, who are prostitutes, like state-sponsored prostitutes, who are only available to upper-class men. Why are they state sponsored? What what purpose do they serve? Release, I guess, basically. Okay, because every time you're having like if you're if you're into some if you're into weird stuff, you can like go and hang out with the Jezebel, and she'll just like role play or whatever. Do people have for the for the Jezebels at all? I mean, it's not forbidden to have sex with (laughs) (laughs) but sex. You know, there's the whole Jezebel thing, and it's. It's partly a way to control women who can't have children but are young and like oh aren't, okay, ne- yeah. aren't necessarily suitable to be sent out to you know to the wasteland to do whatever menial labor or they're not um, yeah, aren't necessarily yeah. suited to be cooks or housekeepers um yeah it's just it's a means of release basically it's a way of giving the man at the top more power all right even and and being a Jezebel is, you know, it's not quite the same as being an ant, but you do at least get like makeup and and nice clothes and stuff. Sure, like it's another. Do it's you another get thing it or where... are you required it though? I think you get. Well, yeah, I think you're probably required <laughs> it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the gift of it is kind of a misnomer, right? Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I'm doing a lot of table setting, and it's because as you read. Like every little excerpt that you read is another puzzle piece. And over the course of the entire book, you put this puzzle together. And so if you if you haven't read this book before, I am I'm not going to say that I'm going to I'm like ruining it for you. But part of what kept me reading through the whole thing is, you know, it, it was an interesting story and, and the prose is engaging and everything. But I also wanted to know like why is stuff this way oh yeah that's what, what happened it what like. happened to to set this dystopia up because animal farm you start at the beginning and you see it you see it decay yes from the start yes 
And in this, you start out, everything is already decayed. So how did we get here? Yeah. Where we were. And that's what it sounds like, you know, as much as I'm, and it sounds like the plot was fine, but that the, the actual driving force of the book is revealing more and more of this world and the world building as a narrative in and of itself. Yeah, like there, there, there's the, you know, the micro plot, which is Offred and her adventures. And then there's the macro plot, which is what happened to the United States. Because you're, it's set up right up front, like somebody is sleeping in some kind of sleeping bag or something. And um, Offred notes that like it still says U.S. on it. Oh, okay. Or like it still says U.S. Army on it. Uh-huh. And so you know from that, like, okay, we are in a world that used to have a United States in it, but it doesn't anymore. Like, what, what, what was the deal with that? And what does that mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I don't think we talked about her naming convention. I think that's like a thing, right? Yeah, um, the concubines in particular are, um, they don't have their own names. They are usually, their, their names are a combination of the word of and then whoever they're master's name is okay so great. Offred is is of fred you have like an of glenn you have you know you run into a bunch of different concubines who are all named by this convention sounds awful <laughs> and it just is it's you know women are property women are not people it's just it drives that home further so i mean as far as the plot of what's happening to Offred, like she she is the concubines of this family um the you know fred the guy that she is the concubine of um is kind of like he's not a sympathizer with the underground mayday resistance unit but he does have his doubts about the way that things have gone down and so he has offred sneak into his den a couple times a week basically and they like play Scrabble, which is forbidden because she's not allowed to read. Like she gets old, like Entertainment Weeklies and People magazines, which she reads just because it's a it's a thing you know, to it's, read. It's a it's yeah. a window to what used to be normal. Yeah, of course. Um, and she's given like cosmetics and stuff, and this is all carried out without the knowledge of the wife or anybody else in the household. And then um, the wife, whose name is Serena Joy, is like, "Well, it's good for the whole household if you have a baby." And so just in case my husband is sterile, I'm going to set you up with our driver and you guys are going to have sex all the time. Gross. And she, And, you know, that's like the only pleasurable sex that she has in this book, basically, huh. is like has sex with with um, I think his name is Mike. I was going to I was going to make it down now. Uh, Nick. Reference Nick. Branson, Nick is. But, OK. No, it's not Branson. Her, his name is Nick. I knew it was like a simple one syllable all-American name. <laughs> so and she like feels she feels bad about having sex with him because like, oh, I'm I'm betraying Luke. Luke, where are you? I, I wish I knew what happened to you. And also like this guy is pretty handsome and sex with him is cool. All right. And the only other sex I get to have is this weird wife sex. No. Um, and and that that's like the kernel of it. And I I imagine it spins out into the revolution and things changing, perhaps. And well, it it ends with her being, you know, basically the commander's proclivities toward, you know, like the the stuff that she does. Okay, there are two things. Like one, the commander is suspected of letting women do things that they are not supposed to do. To Commander Serena Fred Joy, yeah, like Serena Joy has found out about her doing stuff with the husband. Okay, and so at the end of the at the end of the story is Nick coming in, and she's being you know she's being taken away by the Watchers hmm. because she's she's been doing stuff she's not allowed to do. But Nick is like, well, actually, even though I'm a Watcher, I'm also a member of the Resistance. And that's the end. Like you're, you're kind of left to believe that she gets away, but you're not sure. Okay. And then the the end of the book, it ends with this epilogue that takes place after Gilead has fallen. Like it's it's like if you were taking a okay. if you're taking a class about the Ottoman Empire or something, something that happened in the past, not the living past, but recent enough that we have pretty good records and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and they're, you know, they, they, they're talking about how, you know, they have these, the whole book was these tapes that they found and they're pretty sure that they're real, but like, we don't, we can't find actual historical evidence of a lot of these characters existing. Weird. Um, we think, we think we know who the commander was. Like there are a couple people who we probably could have been. Um, and there's one, there's one line that's kind of the crux of, of it. And it's the person who's giving the lecture to the class and they say, you know, we're we're just here to study. We're not here to judge. And in that, I think um, Atwood is taking a swipe at academia and the way it tries to hold itself above morality in, in some ways, if that makes sense. Like they. Interesting. Like, obviously, there is a there's a value judgment to be made about how the society arose and how it conducted itself. But academia is trying to remove itself from that and just look at what happened without examining like the implications or like why the stuff should not happen again or like why it was bad. Like that it's, it's unwilling to cast historical people as like bad guys. They're just kind of trying to study them objectively. And in that they are sort of devaluing, devaluing or diminishing like, yeah, yeah. Offered story and everything that she went through. So interesting because on the flip side, having not read through it and only had you kind of tell me snippets of it through the eyes of the characters, the, uh, I, you know, don't judge, but just assess objectively Mm -hmm. feels like an attempt to honor everyone involved and not, you know, assess what happened of the of the people that were involved and and try to dis, try to figure out why they did what they did rather than yeah. judging what they did. I don't it's know. Not, it's I don't want to go right to Nazis. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, you know, what if we what if we studied World War II and Hitler and Nazis without making some kind of value judgment about the Holocaust? Interesting. Yep. Interesting. I think I think that's that's the comparison I would draw and I'm not sure if that's totally on the nose and i know that nazi comparisons are like the laziest form of internet arguing no but (laughs) but for for the pain that she's taken to talk about racial segregation and religious segregation i think i think you're not far off to at least bring that up sure yeah um interesting what do you think uh i don't know this is totally it's like way too big of a question yeah like i think i'm pretty much done with plots yeah, and stuff. yeah yeah so yeah. let's lay yeah let's try and do some big picture what is she talking about here. like what is she you know you you look at something that's orwellian as we talked about last week and you talk about something like 1984 and you're looking at government overreach you're looking at uh the the system that is the government kind of infiltrating and subjugating culture as a whole yeah. This is much more, to me, it sounds much more specific in that it's in how it breaks up gender and then breaks up those, the two genders in themselves into their own casts. Yeah, like there there are a few different sides. I mean, one is the U.S. versus Canada thing that we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah, we, we need um, to come back to that. We didn't elucidate on that. So I, I mean, I don't know that we really, there's really much to elucidate except that she especially in this period was was vocally anti-us and the in this book it is generally held that that gilead is the us and they are bullying and bossing around canada okay um the second thing is you know the feminist argument and that it uses these heightened examples to bring to light the subtle and dumb ways in which women are still for no reason other than them being women like paid less or like thought less of, or, you know, you like the, the more subtle arguments about gender and, and feminism and sexism that we, that we're still talking about like all the time right now. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Anything specific in the book that kind of rang out as like you saw that in the news the other day or anything like that? Or something about the way that the system is set up? Just If not, that's okay. It's a specific question. No, but. I mean, not, my, my one big observation that is not 
you know, that I didn't run into re- when I was researching, like the, the one thing that I was thinking of that is not like part of the established scholarship about this book is that um, I found it really eerie. Like there is an awkward ring of truth to the way that the citizens of the society accept one by one all the changes oh. that are being made. Yeah. Like there's a sequence where um, Alfred goes into a convenience store and there's, you know, it used to be a female checkout lady and now it's a, now it's a guy and she tries to buy something using her account number and it's like, okay, it doesn't have money in it anymore. There is a sequence where she goes into her job and the boss comes out, you know, the male boss comes out and, you know, obviously very stressed, but also not standing up for anybody or anything Hmm. says, you know, all you ladies are fired because women can't have jobs anymore. Um, it's, it's that slippery slope thing. Yeah. It's a slippery slope thing. Like it's, it's uncomfortable to me. And I think there are a lot of parallels to be made with like the post 9-11 surveillance state. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Is it's really uncomfortable to me what we will accept in the name of like avoiding conflict or avoiding having to do anything substantive to like stick your neck out and. Yeah. And defend the, the, you know, and, and say, you know, what's happening is wrong. I don't, I don't agree with this, you know? Well, and your your brief summation of the commander is like kind of a mix of it, right? Because he still, he enjoys some of the fruits of this new society, but has misgivings about it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's let's bring it to current events. I mean, let's talk about Ferguson, which is something you and I have texted about. Yeah. Like just, just how powerless and how how upset we are and then there you know there have been several tweets and things making the rounds that are like you know white privilege is being upset by ferguson and not being scared about it yes and it's it's that kind of thing like that's what that's what the commander is you know he is he is the Mm. white man in in this society like he he can evaluate the stuff and come to the conclusion that it's wrong and um and maybe you know maybe even in his own small way do something that he thinks will make it better like when he lets offered play scrabble with him or whatever but when it come you know when it gets down to it he is you know he individually is powerless to change anything and so he doesn't try to change anything or feels he is powerless to change you know like yeah, the immensity yeah. of the situation and this is kind of what you and I were talking about with regards to current events, the immensity of the situation and its repercussions feels, it, oh my God, it feels so huge and so thorny and so complicated that it's so scary to wade into it. It's so mm-hmm. scary to take a stance that on on any one part of it without fearing that you're either saying the wrong thing when you when you hope you mean the right thing or you know not checking your own privilege or perspective at the door in the correct way which is something you and i are trying to do week in and week out on this show it seems yeah, like right yeah it's and it's a barrel of laughs it's every a, time oh my good gracious <laughs> um but yeah i, I was hmm well, it does make me very happy that this it sounds silly but very happy that this book was written by a woman um and i'm sure that there is more to be mined there i'd be interested to hear from listeners who have read the book and are familiar with it and and Mm -hmm. and their thoughts because uh our own discussion of it is going to be of course limited and i i could totally foresee this story being written by a male author a male novelist and still being a good story but then like having a slightly different agenda or perspective yeah yeah, right. Um, do you get the sense, real, we're basically out of time, but do you get the sense that she has a particular axe to grind or that she is just kind of throwing up a crappy situation that she foresees as all too possible and just asking us to walk away horrified or upset about it? <laughs> I mean, I think she can do both. I mean, she she obviously has the feminist axe to grind. She has the nationalist axe to grind. Okay. And she also wants us to 
walk away having read the story and recognizing the elements of our actual real life society that are exaggerated in the book but still recognizable hmm. okay so i mean that that's what that's what i would say that's what i took away from it um i i asked that because there's a pretty good quote from her website i was looking for biography information her website's kind of slim on it but she did have a really entertaining uh frequently asked questions and one of them was, can you tell me what a particular poem, novel, ending, or symbol means? And she responded, students and curious readers write to ask about interpretation of one of my books, questions like, this book ends ambiguously, uh, can you tell me what happened? Or, this critic says this happened, do you agree? And her response is, there are two points to be made about this, this sort of question. First, what I think about what happened is already in the book. Secondly, I'm not comfortable giving interpretations of my work. If I were to provide one, it would become the definitive interpretation, inhibiting readers from finding their own meanings. Yep, right. Like the old Tony Soprano, is he dead or not? Yeah. Well, and I think that's an ex- that's a exaggerated pop culture version of this phenomenon. I just I'd like to keep bringing up things to like give give things context or like give people a. Oh yeah, now I get it because I I am more familiar with that thing oh, that they just brought up. That's fair. I'm more familiar with Nazis or Tony Soprano <laughs> than I am with <laughs> than I am with Canadian dystopian novels. That's fair. Well, and it comes up in stuff like, you know, we we've, we've read Beckett on the show. We've talked about Waiting for Godot. We've read Pinter. We've also, you know, there's some like all the hullabaloo about Lost where problem with that show lost well the problem with that show was that (laughs) the problem with that show right was that i think the creators of it wanted to play in this realm where they could kind of toss up an ambiguous thing and then or a thing open to interpretation but then everyone got so excited about the facts and then you know everyone got disappointed (laughs) i think you lost me with that analogy that's fine if you got that analogy and you want to tell Andrew what I was going after, or you want to talk to us about Margaret Atwood or Canada, you can, or Hurley or Hurley, I guess uh, you can Facebook us at facebook.com slash overdue pod. We've got a couple of book recommendations there in the past couple of weeks. Thank you folks. We've also got a Twitter at twitter.com slash overdue pod, which is where people were suggesting that Andrew read uh, Lolita or discuss Lolita before Handmaid's Tale. Well, Lolita's coming up. And um, we've also got, you know, Lee suggesting Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, Kara thinks that Andrew needs to have, we need to have an intervention about uh, Andrew selling animals for whiskey. <laughs> um, Listen, man, I don't have a problem. <laughs> You're the problem. Uh, and we had plenty of people excited about recent episodes like Orange is the New Black and. Um, uh the gone girl episode so thanks for all your outpouring of support on social media we appreciate it you can also send us emails like paula did at overduepod at gmail.com andrew if they want anything else where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com which is our website um up there we have amazon links to the books that we have read the ones that we are going to read if you click those and buy the book or pretty much anything else, we get a small cut of that to uh, defer our book buying and hosting costs. I just had to refer, I just had to uh, renew our website account. So, so yeah, a little bit of extra money in the coffers would be nice. Oh, your right Christmas shopping. Just do it. Yeah. Just, yeah. just buy everyone all of our books. All you the know books you're going to do read. all your Christmas shopping on Amazon on December 21st, so why not do it after you click one of our links? What else is on that website, though, Andrew? Uh, we also have our RSS feed and our iTunes page that you can use to subscribe to this show in your podcatcher of choice. If you do subscribe to us through iTunes, please leave ratings and reviews. We really like those a lot. Um, and we've gotten a few recently. not None since the last time we recorded, but... Um, in the last like month or so, we've gotten a few. So we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. It uh, makes us feel good, and it helps the show out in the in the iTunes ranking, so it makes it easier for people to find us. Um, I think that's it. Craig, what are, you, what are you doing next week? Or or do we just want to talk about what might happen anytime in the near future? I think we're trying to do a guest episode upcoming. Yes, either next week or the week after. My friend Casey Johnston... Uh, plans to read Lonesome Dove by Larry Larry McMurtry. <laughs> I might edit that down. <laughs> uh, so I just say the right thing. And I'm still working my way through Moby Dick, but I'm probably going to find uh, something a little slimmer to wrap my 
my head around for an upcoming this book episode. is literally your white whale it really is it's on my it's on my <laughs> side table i've been i've been picking it up and putting it down uh i enjoy it but it's definitely not going to happen anytime soon yeah. so and then next time i do an episode whether that's the week after next or the week after that it will be lolita so sit tight if you want to hear me talk about pedophiles gross all right that's all we got this week <laughs> all right everybody thank you for listening we'll see you next week and until then try to be happy Do when you eat a fruit pie, what is your favorite fruit-based pie? Cherry pie. Cherry pie. When Apple you, pie is gross. Raspberry uh, and blackberry have too many seeds. I almost just reached through the internet to punch <laughs> you. Apple pie is the best pie. So nope. anyway, assuming Wrong. you are eating a delicious apple or cherry pie. Cherry pie. Uh, do you like a pie that has a top crust, or do you like more of a crumble kind of kind of thing? I can go either way. Okay. I know that's not a very interesting answer. but <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just good to know uh, that you basically agree with me and that I prefer the top crust. Like if it's a pecan. No, you got to have something on top of a fruit pie because otherwise it just becomes this amorphous thing where it like as soon as you take a piece out of it like all the fruit just falls over and occupies the space where that piece used to be that's true i think what generally happens is that there's some sort of like crumble or like you know something on top that kind of crystallizes a little bit yeah but it's not as it's not always as uh, elaborate as a full pie crust on top or like a lattice crust or something like that um laura's making pies for thanksgiving weekend and she puts them in the oven and then turned to me and goes, I forgot to do the egg wash and the sugar on the apple pie. Do you want me to go and do that? And I said, yes. <laughs> I surprised myself. Even with, though that's like, that's not super important. I mean, oh, it, it is look nice, I guess. super important, Andrew. There's sugar on top of the pie. That is an important part of that pie. Okay. Okay. Okay, Mr. Pie Opinions over there. Why, why don't you... 